0: Amen. Well, I was having a conversation a few years back with my oldest son, Joel, who had just graduated from university with a degree in international business. And we were talking about what he wanted to do with his life. And he said this to me, he said, Dad, I want to impact the world for Jesus. I just don't want to do it your way. And what he meant by that was the missionary way, going and being a full-time missionary. Um, You know, when Joel made that statement, I'm not sure I was really listening. After all, he had just graduated from university. He was idealistic. I was realistic. Uh, He hadn't even landed his first real job yet. I I had just been named the president of this great commission ministry. And I I think I thought that Joel would learn soon enough that the well-worn tracks of the modern-day missionary movement, carved into the soil by godly men and women for the past 200 years, were tried and true, and they would work for him as well. Um, you need to understand, I wasn't insulted by, by what my son said to me. He has great respect for my call to what you might call vocational ministry, but I was frustrated. Um, I was frustrated at my lack of ability as the leader of a, a, a great commission ministry to provide tracks for a, son like, uh, a, a person like my son other than to say to him, well, leave behind your career and all the studies you just did and go back to a Bible college and get a real ministry degree and become a real full-fledged missionary like me. Joel is not alone in his desire to impact the world through his profession. I think he represents a growing number of, of godly men and women, largely untapped resource, who want to make a difference in this world not by leaving their jobs, but by leveraging their jobs for the sake of the kingdom. Now, you may find it hard to believe, but God loves Mondays. Contrary to popular belief, I don't think Sunday is his favorite day of the week. I think it's actually Monday, but not for most people it isn't. No, Monday is the beginning of the grind. You know, it's the one day of the week that we don't thank God for. We thank God that it's Friday, but we don't thank God that it's Monday. So why is it that God loves Mondays and we don't? Well, let me tell you a true story. Stefan Breitweiser was arguably the world's most consistently successful art thief. Over the course of seven years, he stole $2 billion worth of art from auction rooms, museums, and antique dealers all over Europe, lifting them from a total of 172 different venues. Most of the um, old masters Uh, Dating between the 16th and 18th century, he would simply cut from the middle of the frame, roll them up, and stuff them under his jacket. He never sold any of his work, preferring rather to amass a staggering collection which he stored at his mother's house. But he got caught by a keen eyed security guard in a museum in Luzerne, Switzerland, from which he had stolen an antique bugle only days before. Breitweiser confessed everything to the Swiss police, telling them what he had stolen and from what places, and telling them that he had stored it all at his mother's house. And here's the kicker. When his mother found out of his, uh, that he had been arrested, she went into action destroying all the priceless treasure that he had amassed at her house. She threw 109 artifacts into the Rhine-Rhone Canal, And she took 60 masterpieces and cut them in little pieces and threw them in the trash. By the time the authorities got a search warrant one week after her son's arrest, she had succeeded in destroying almost all of the $2 billion worth of art. When apprehended, she told police that she was so furious with her son that she had destroyed them out of spite, fear, and greed, concerned that if he got Uh, If he got convicted, she would lose her work permit and she would be out of a job. Think of that. Two billion dollars trashed all out of spite, fear, and greed. You know, I think that a similar thing has happened to work. Work has been ripped from its place of honor at the center of God's masterpiece of creation. And it has been shredded and trashed ever since. And it's our privilege to restore it to its place of beauty and honor. So let me tell you another story that illustrates the centrality of the workplace in God's design to transform the world. There once was a man in the ancient city of Jericho by the name of Zacchaeus. He worked collecting the taxes that Rome had imposed on its conquered subjects. Now, Zach wasn't a big man, he was probably the smallest man in town, but what he lacked in stature, he made up for in smarts, for we're told that he had climbed to the very top of the ladder in a very dirty industry, tax collecting, we're told that he was the chief tax collector, and he was also very rich. Hearing that Jesus, this popular rabbi, had, uh, was coming to town, Zach decided that he wanted to see this man that everybody was talking about. So we're told that he ran ahead of the crowd, he climbed up a tree, and he waited, when Jesus got to the spot, we're told he stopped. He looked up and he said, Zacchaeus, you must come down right now. I must stay at your house today. We're told that Zacchaeus came down from the tree, I imagine brimming with pride, while everyone else was bristling with anger, muttering under their breasts, what is this rabbi doing? He's going to eat with a crook. But that day, Zacchaeus became a new man, totally transformed. Never had any religious leader ever taken even so much the time of day uh, to give him the time of day. And yet here Jesus had stopped and publicly affirmed him in front of everyone, uh, showing that he wasn't ashamed to hang with the likes of Zach. And before the day was over, Zacchaeus uh, Zacchaeus said this to Christ. He said, Lord, I'm giving half of everything I own to the poor, and if I've defrauded anybody, I'll pay them back four to one. And Jesus said, had this to say, he said, today this man, a true son of Abraham, is saved, he's forgiven, he's made new, and he is exactly the kind of person that I have come looking for. But then as if it wasn't enough that Jesus had just publicly affirmed this man that everybody hated, Luke tells us in Luke chapter 19, that as they heard these things, what had just transpired with Zacchaeus, he proceeded to tell them a parable. And I'd like us to look at that parable. It's recorded in Luke chapter 19. I'm going to begin reading at verse 12. Luke chapter 19 and verse 12. He said, therefore, a nobleman went into a far country to receive for himself a kingdom and then return. Calling ten of his servants, he gave them ten minas, and he said to them, engage in business until I come. But the citizens hated him and sent a delegation after him saying, we don't want this mandarin over us. When he returned, having received the kingdom, he ordered those servants to whom he had given the money to be called to him that he might know what they had gained by doing business. The first came before him saying, Lord, your mina has made ten minas more. And he said to him, well done, good servant. Because you've been faithful in a very little, you shall have authority over ten cities. The second came, saying, Lord, your mina has made five minas. And he said to him, and you're to be over five cities. Then another came, saying, Lord, here's my mina, which I kept laid away in a handkerchief, for I was afraid of you, because you're a severe man. You take what you didn't deposit, and you reap what you didn't sow. He said to him, I'll condemn you with your own words, you wicked servant. You knew that I was a severe man, taking what I didn't deposit and reaping what I didn't sow? Why then did you not put my money in the bank? And at my coming, I might have collected it with interest. Here we have two stories, back to back. One, the story of a businessman named Zacchaeus. The other, the story of three businessmen. In each of these two stories, one a true story and the other a parable, we find out that there were Heroes and villains. In the first story, the hero and the villain were one and the same. This crooked little businessman who, we're told, made a lot of money and in the end used it in a good way. In the second story, the heroes were two of the three, again, the two businessmen who were entrusted with money and made a lot of money and used it in a way that profited the master. Jesus, I believe, specifically told these two stories back to back. In fact, it says right there in the text that as these things were happening, he told them this parable because he wanted people to make a connection. He wanted people to get a point, And I believe what he wanted them to understand was at least this, that your occupation is a sacred trust on which God expects a return. Work is not a curse. It is a blessing. It is not to be squandered, wasted. It is to be stewarded. It is not a waste. Your work is worship. It is an act of worship, which is why I say God loves Mondays. All of you are called to full-time ministry through your work. It doesn't matter what it is, whether it's the kind of work I do, whether it's the kind of work you do as a business person or as a stay-at-home mom. God has called every one of us to full-time ministry through our work. Many of you are called to do that right here in America where you live. Some of you, perhaps unaware yet, but some of you are called to do that work in another least-reached part of the world. CrossWorld, in fact, is committed to helping people like you leverage the stewardship of your work in order to bless the nations. We exist to send disciple makers from all professions who will bring God's love to life in the world's least reached marketplaces. I'm not here to sell books this morning, but if you want to read more about what I'm talking about, we uh, published a, a book a few years ago called A Better Way. You can go and uh, Google it on Amazon and get it. A Better Way: Making Disciples Wherever Life Happens. So let me say it again, your occupation is a sacred trust on which God expects a return. It is central, it is not peripheral, it is central to God's plan for transforming the world. Today I want to see, I want you to see that that is in fact true and how it looks on Monday morning. How do you take your full-time job and turn it into a full-time ministry? So first of all, why is your occupation a sacred trust on which God expects a return? Well, first of all, it's because God loves work. He has designed it as a pathway for worship and for world transformation. You know, I think we all, uh, many of us at least, have this false notion that what I do is ministry, and what you do, you're called to, well, you're just called You're working stiffs, that's all. What I do is sacred, and what you do is secular. Do you know, I, I believe that there is no sacred-secular divide in God's mind. Everything we do is to be sacred. Everything we do is an act of worship. The nobleman in this story who represented God did not call his servants, give them Bibles, and say, preach until I return. No, he called his servants, he gave them money, roughly $10,000, Amina was about three months' wage, so let's just say three months' wage for a a working guy, roughly $10,000, he gave them money, and he said, do business until I return. You see, he didn't call them out of business to serve him, he called them into business to serve him. Same thing with Zacchaeus. When his life was transformed, Jesus didn't tell him to leave his work. You would think if there was any job, he would tell him to leave. It's one like that. He didn't tell him to leave his work. Apparently, he told him to leverage his work because we see that that's exactly what Zacchaeus went on to do. You know, it's mystifying to me how far we have strayed from what God really thinks about our work. In God's original piece, a masterpiece of creation, he put two relationships right at the center of that masterpiece, two primary relationships. The first one was man and his work, the second one was man and his woman or man and and his wife. We see that man work relationship in Genesis chapter 2, verse 15, for example, where it says, The Lord God took the man, put him in the garden of Eden to work it and keep it. That word there that's translated work is the very same word that you find other places in the Old Testament translated serve, minister, or worship. It's the same word, work, serve, minister, worship. For example, God said to Pharaoh, let my people go that they may worship me or serve me. Same word. It could have been translated that they may work for me. God designed work, what you do 40 or 50 hours a week, As an act of worship. I think that's why the Apostle Paul, for example, said in Colossians chapter 3 to some of the lowest, probably the lowest workers on the scale, slaves. He said, whatever you do, do your work heartily. As for the Lord, not for men, it is the Lord Christ whom you serve, for whom you work. You see, we are called to fill the earth with worship through the man-work relationship, and to fill the earth with worshipers through the man-wife relationship. That second relationship, the man-wife relationship, is seen a few verses later there in Genesis chapter 2, where we read, And a man shall leave his father and his mother and hold fast to his wife, and they shall become one flesh. And then he puts those two relationships that are right at the the center of his masterpiece, he puts them together, in Genesis 1, where he says, be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth. What's that? That's, how do you do that? You do that through the man-wife relationship. Be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth and subdue it and have dominion over it. How do you do that? through the man-work relationship. In other words, you fill the earth with worshipers who will worship me through their work by discovering and developing and harnessing and ruling over the riches and the wonders that I have put into this creation called the earth. The wonders of physics and botany and mathematics and architecture and design and the culinary arts and on and on and on. And when humanity chose to rebel against God, it was as if the master thief cut right from the middle of that beautiful masterpiece, those two relationships, and he has been shredding and trashing them ever since. And it is our privilege to restore them to their place of honor. Think about it. He has taken human sexuality, that one centerpiece of his masterpiece, and he has turned it into the number one undisputed object of illicit, perverse, criminal, debauched, exploitive human activity that has hundreds of millions, if not billions of people in bondage to this gross perversion of what he created in the first place, and he's done the same thing to work. He took the man-work relationship, and he has reduced it to meaningless drudgery for some, money-hungry greed for others, a necessary evil for most, and something to escape from on Fridays, but certainly not to thank him for on Mondays. And he wants us to restore the beauty of what he created to its original place of honor. So your occupation is a sacred trust on which God expects a return because he loves work. He created it as a pathway for worship and for world transformation. Secondly, He loves. Uh, it's a sacred trust on which he expects a return because he loves profit. Profit is not evil. Greed is evil. Exploiting your workers to make more money is evil. But profit and profit, profitability, profitability are good. In fact, God so loves profitable business that the three heroes in these two two stories are the guys who made a lot of money and used it to advance his kingdom. Now, Zacchaeus did it at first through greed and exploitation, but when he got saved, that greed greed and, and exploitation was transformed to generosity and integrity. So, the reason our, job, our occupation is a sacred trust on which God expects a return is because God loves work, because God loves profit, and a third reason is because God loves reward. He loves to reward those who take what he's entrusted to them and use it profitably to advance his kingdom. To the guy with the tenfold return, he says, well done, good job. But he doesn't stop there. Why? Because what we do on this earth doesn't end on this earth. No, he says, good job. Well done. You've been faithful in a little thing, the 10,000 bucks I gave you. You've been faithful in a little thing. I'm going to put you in charge of 10 cities. And these are not 10 broken cities like we see in our world today. No, these are 10 glorious kingdom Eden-like cities because if you look in verse 15, it says that the master had returned. He had received his kingdom and he had returned. So these are 10 glorious cities. The point is clear. What you do with what you have here, directly and exponentially influences your enjoyment of eternity. In fact, in Matthew's account of it, Jesus says to this this man, enter into the joy of your Lord. You see, your occupation is a sacred trust on which God expects a return because God loves work, because God loves profit, and because God loves reward. So now the question is, so, How do I turn my full-time job into a full-time ministry? What does it look like on Monday morning to do my work as worship, as ministry? Does it mean I go and I leave tracts on the urinals in the men's room? Does it mean that I corner my co-worker at lunchtime and try and make him have a conversation with me about Jesus? I'd like to share with you six very simple things that all of us can do to turn our jobs In fact, to turn all that we do in life into full-time ministry. Number one, you see all three of them there, that's all right. Number one, love God supremely. You need to love God supremely. Work as ministry is far more about who you are than what you do or say. The greatest commandment ever uttered from the mouth of Jesus was what? Hero, Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one, and you shall serve the Lord. No, and you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, strength, and mind. Jesus said, that's the greatest, that's the number one. Anything of value that happens on Monday morning is simply an overflow of my love for God and his word. Zacchaeus was so excited about Jesus, he couldn't wait for Monday morning. He wasn't muttering under his breath after he got Hey, I hate work, and people hate me, and my boss thinks he's God. Why can't I just go into real ministry? No, no. He was so excited about the transformation that Jesus had worked in him, he couldn't wait to get to work. Monday morning for he and his customers was going to be totally different. Well, does that mean he was going to go and start preaching the Bible to them when he got there? No. It meant that he was going to be a different man. He was going to collect his Roman taxes with integrity, with honesty. He was going to treat them with respect. He was going to be the most trustworthy, good, God-loving tax collector they had ever met. You see, loving Jesus transformed Monday morning for Zacchaeus. And that's where it starts with us. Secondly, you do excellent work. We ought to be among the best employers, the best managers, the best CEOs in the world. Because we ought to do our jobs as well as we can. We ought to be the best we can possibly be. Never rob your employer and dishonor your father by doing shoddy work. Thirdly, we turn full-time job into full-time ministry by being people of integrity. You know, loving God passionately and working with excellence doesn't mean you're perfect. And when you're not perfect, you admit it. Integrity means that when you mess up, you admit it. You treat somebody wrong in a meeting, you go back to them and say, you know, the way I treated you yesterday in that meeting was just wrong. Would you forgive me? I, I, I try to live my life as God would have me live it, and I need to ask for your forgiveness. I have a friend named Eric who says of his coworkers, they don't expect me to be perfect. They just hate it when I pretend that I am. That's integrity. You love God supremely. You do your work with excellence. You live a life of integrity. And then fourthly, you take time for people. Jesus summarized the essence of life in four words. Love God, love people. The two greatest commandments. Love God, love people. World impact happens when we take time for people. And I think that's our biggest problem in the West. We don't have time for people. We have time for God. You don't have time for people. Natalie, a friend of ours, had been coaching her friend Janet in some simple steps that she could do to begin to turn her life into ministry. And so she said to Janet, she said, you know, you need to slow down and take time to see people. So she decided she was going to try to do that. One day she was standing in line at the bank and she noticed a man of Asian descent ahead of her who seemed to be having trouble filling out a form. So she helped him. And after she had done it, she thought, wow, that felt good. I can do this. So as they finished up their transaction, the two of them were walking out the door at the same time, and she was uh, saying goodbye to him and saying she'd been happy to meet him. And she was just about to tell him her name. And he said, I know who you are. She kind of looked at him and said, you do? He said, yes, you're the lady who buys sushi from me every Tuesday. Here she had been doing business with this guy face to face for months and she'd never seen him. We've got to slow down. We've got to take time for people. If you will cultivate your love for God, do your work with excellence, live lives of integrity, and take time for people, that's about 90% of work is ministry. The last 10%, the last two steps, are really where it gets fun. Number five, watch and pray. Just watch and pray for opportunities. Be on the lookout for God to do something, to open a door. Bob is a business guy here in Kansas City, and he had never realized until recently challenged by a friend of his that his work is ministry. It's an act of worship. So he began to look for opportunities to do that. He's driving to work one day. He's just about to pull on the freeway. When he looks over under the bridge and he sees two guys beating this other guy up. So he whips his car off the road under the, uh, the, the uh, overpass. He jumps out of his little shiny little silver BMW and he starts yelling at these guys. Hey, you guys, leave that guy alone. What do you think you're doing? Well, now, Bob is not a real big guy. Um, and as soon as he starts yelling at these guys, they leave off with the guy they're beaten on and they start advancing on Bob. Well, Bob might might not be big, but I think he was smart like Zacchaeus, because he says, you guys might want to think about what you do next, because I'm an off-duty police officer, and I've already called for backup. And they turned tail and ran. (laughs) Now, I guess he hadn't got to the discipleship part about lying, but it worked. (laughs) So anyway, he he goes over to the guy who's just laying there beaten, and he helps him up, he brings him to his car, and he asks him where his camp is so he can take him back to his camp. He gets him back to his camp, he pulls out his wallet to give him some money, and the man says to him, I don't want your money. What I need is a job. Well, Bob's job almost hit the steering wheel. You know why? Because Bob's business is bringing jobs to Kansas City. And it was as if God was saying to him, you just watch what I do when you begin to see your work, your life, as an opportunity for ministry. The last thing is this. When God opens the door... Just tell them what you know. Just tell them what you know. Jesus said to his followers, you shall be my witnesses. I think many of us have interpreted that as if it were, you shall be my lawyers. Do you know there's a big difference between a lawyer and a witness? A lawyer's job is to do what? To convince somebody of something. A witness's job is simply to tell what he knows. And if a witness steps across this line and starts trying to convince a jury, his whole testimony is suspect. Jesus said, be my witnesses. Just tell them what you know. Just tell them why you love me. Just tell them what I've done for you. And that really brings us right back to the first point. And that is, you love God supremely. That's where it all starts. You know, God loves Mondays because God loves work. And God loves work because he created it as a pathway for worship and for world transformation. I like to imagine God getting up on Monday mornings, even though he never goes to bed, but getting on, up on Monday mornings and not saying, TGIF, thank God it's Friday, but saying, TMIM, thank me, it's Monday. <laughs> and as he looks out over the world where millions and billions of people are flooding out into the workplaces of the world, he leans in with anticipation of how his full-time ministers, you, through your, an overflow of your love for him, your excellence and your integrity, your love for people, your prayerful watching for opportunities, how he will open doors for you to glorify him and share his love with others. But you know, I'm here to tell you this morning, I have to tell you that there are workplaces all over this world where millions, tens of millions of people <coughs> will show up tomorrow morning without a single person to tell them about the excellencies of God. And that's why I believe that God is calling some of you, certainly not all of you, but some of you, to take what he's given you, your work, and do it in a much less reached part of the world. The highest known sale price ever paid for any piece of artwork was paid just last October for a a piece was paid by an an anonymous buyer for a Leonardo da Vinci piece called Saviour of the World. The 26-inch portrait pictures Jesus with his right hand raised in blessing, his left hand holding a crystal sphere. It was once owned by Charles I of England, then it disappeared and it resurfaced in 1900 when it was purchased by a British collector. It was sold again in 1958, and then in 2005, it was acquired by a group of, um, a consortium of art dealers who paid less than $10,000 for it. Badly damaged and partially painted over, the painting was given to an expert who spent the next five years meticulously restoring it to its original condition. And when that had been done, it was finally realized and documented that that it was an authentic da Vinci. And it sold for $450 million. Now tell me, what turned a $10,000 painting into a $450 million masterpiece? What did it take? It took a group of people who recognized its intrinsic value. And it took years of painstaking effort to restore it to its original value by somebody who must have known that original well. And you know it'll take no less of us today to restore the masterpiece of creation to its original beauty so that the artist, the creator, is recognized and adored for who he is. But if a man will labor for five long years to restore a 26-inch painting of Jesus to its original value of 400 or to its original beauty and to a value of 450 million people, 450 million dollars, how much more time and sacrifice is the savior of the world worth? As I look back at that conversation several years ago with my son, I realized that he had discovered something of great value. He had discovered this priceless masterpiece that God had painted thousands of years ago. And though it had been obscured and and damaged by millennia of abuse, he could still see a faint image of he and his wife and he and his work right at the center of it. Worshiping God through his work, not just on Sundays, but even more so on Mondays. No God loves Mondays,
1: and we can too. Amen. If you'll just grab a seat for uh, a couple a couple minutes, um, I love the the illustration Dale gave this morning about being a witness versus being a lawyer. Um, I've never been. I've never been called in to be a witness in a trial, praise the Lord, Um, but I've watched enough Law and Order (laughs) to know that when that happens, there's some form or fashion of a moment where that witness is asked, do you swear to tell the truth, the whole truth, and nothing but the truth? And as witnesses in this world, God asks nothing more of us than that we would tell the truth the whole truth and nothing but the truth in our lives in the way that we act, whether that be at work or at home or wherever it is that you might go and in word that we would speak the truth to those that we interact with. Acts one verse eight uh, says this, but you will receive power when the Holy spirit has come upon you. If you've placed your faith in Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of your sin, then the Holy Spirit has come upon you. And Acts eight goes on to say what that power is for. And you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and all Judea and Samaria and to the ends of the earth. We've been talking about for the last three weeks what it means to be mission-driven. And I think oftentimes when we just even hear the word mission— We think that that means that whoever's up front is going to tell us that we need to sell everything and go overseas and live among a tribe, right? Who's never seen uh, a Western person and has never had the Bible. And it's possible that the Lord would call you to do that. And there are absolutely groups of people who need that. But being mission-driven simply means that the proclamation of the gospel, boldly spoken in word and humbly modeled in deed to all the nations of the earth, is the driving motivation in your life. And that can happen right here, if that's where God calls you to stay, or it could happen in some other culture, if that's where God were to call you to go. What matters is that we have hearts captivated by the gospel that long to share that message with all the people that we might interact with. And so what we want to do this morning uh, as we kind of wrap up this little three-week section is that we want to give you some tangible uh, things you can grab onto in order to do that. And so Dale did a fantastic job of talking about what that might look like in your workplace if you're someone who has a full-time job. Um, And I would encourage you to not just walk out of here and think to yourself, man, good couple sermons last week. I mean, Joe had me wanting to run through a wall last week. I just didn't know what I was going to do when I got through the wall. And now Dale has given us some great handles, and so I'm going to save all the people that I work with. Think about that for a second. (laughs) I work at a church. Okay. Uh, here's, Here's what we're encouraging you to do. Consider where it is that the Lord has called you. Whatever season of life you're in, whatever job you might be in currently, whatever your daily reality looks like, I pray that you stepped into that faithfully, that the Lord called you to that place, to this current season, and that you want to use that as faithfully and obediently as you can. And so that might be at work, that might be in your home, if you stay at home with your kids, that might be uh, in relationships, in whatever kind of sphere it is that you operate within. But pray about what it looks like to use that faithfully, to do that thing excellently, to have integrity, to love Jesus and the Lord supremely in your life and in that place, and then to be a witness and to tell the truth, the whole truth, and nothing but the truth while you're in that place. If you're looking for tangible ways that you can be involved in sharing in a more kind of organized or explicit manner, when you walk out this morning, you're going to receive a little uh, kind of cardstock sheet here. On it, it has a number of opportunities listed that exist here through LCF that you could be involved in sharing the gospel here in our community. If you're someone who feels like there's a stirring inside of you, a calling to go and to be a missionary in a different sense, I can't encourage you enough to connect with Joe Stewart, uh, someone on our staff to talk to Dale about what that might look like with Crossworld. We'd love to process that with you and pray with you about where it is that the Lord might be sending you. That doesn't have to be you though. If it is you, be obedient. If that's not you, be obedient to live here compelled by the gospel to share the hope of Jesus Christ with all that you might interact with. That's what we've been called to do. You will receive power when the Holy Spirit comes upon you, that you might be witnesses to the truth of the gospel. Amen? Amen. So when you go out, you're going to get one of these. Uh, Don't let the last three weeks just be something kind of nice you heard at church on Sunday. Let the last three weeks be something that influences who you are and how you interact in this world. Amen? Amen. All right. Have a great uh, Sunday. We will see you next week.